Basketball in LA is unmatched. All the opportunities that I've ever been given in my life came from being here in LA. People might think it's cool because, you know, Hollywood, the weather. No, man, it's beautiful out here, but at the same time, it's hardcore. In LA, you can get embarrassed to quit. Los Angeles is the mecca of basketball. I think it's transitioned from the East Coast now to the West Coast. It's a little flashy. Lay back, smooth skills, but at the same time, got a lot of dog. This is Game Behind the Game, a podcast designed to shed light on the individuals that have impacted the basketball culture of the greater LA area. These players, coaches, and trainers have had their own unique impact on the growth of the LA hoop scene, but not the opportunity to share their wisdom and experiences on a greater platform. The goal is to inspire the next generation to do the things that inspire them the most and help create a platform that will impact others by building lasting relationships in the basketball community to show the youth how to navigate the same issues that may have held back previous eras, to build the work ethic and leadership needed to advance their basketball careers, and most importantly, to motivate and stimulate the personal development of players inside and outside of their athletic identity. Since 1973, the Drew League has brought local talent streetball legends, and professional players together in Los Angeles. All for the love of basketball. For 40 years, the Drew has been a remarkable success story that began in South Central and still continues to flourish within the exact same community. The rich legacy includes the original founding father, a visionary commissioner, three different gyms, veteran coaches, and countless unforgettable moments. It's here that I'm meeting up with one of those coaches who constantly gives back to the game and the surrounding community. Now, in any industry, regardless of the prestige, there are always certain names that you should know, whether it be for networking or through rite of passage. When it comes to basketball in Los Angeles, Keon Kindred, better known as Keys the Gatekeeper, is one of those names. I met Keon back in 2013 through an open run that he co-created called Air West. It just so happens to be the most exclusive invite-only run in Los Angeles. And if you don't believe me, just check out the Instagram page below. That alone should give you an idea. Invites are sent out via text message along with an address or location. I was trying to figure out how he got my number, let alone how he even knew who I was. Before then, I'd never heard of him. But after my experience at Air West, he became someone I would never forget. First name's Keon, last name Kendrick. Born and raised in South Central Los Angeles. Uh, went to high school at Dominguez High School in Compton, California. The infamous Dominguez High School. Um, one of the most prestigious high schools ever. Played alongside Tyson Chandler. Um, the same high school as Tayshawn Prince, Brandon Jennings, Jordan Hamilton. Uh, rest in peace, Dennis Johnson, Cedric Sabalos, guys of that nature. One of the greatest high schools ever, let me tell it. Um, after that, went on to college, played junior college. Played Division One, played a little bit Division Two. Um, traveled a little bit overseas early, and then um, had to walk away from the game due to injury at around the age of 27. And then at that age, I began my training business, uh, which is now known as CLC Basketball, which stands for Consistency Leads to Currency. How was transitioning from basketball to JUCO, and then JUCO to the next level for whether it be D2 or D1 when it came to your basketball career? The transition for me was, was fairly easy. Um, as stated earlier in our conversation about high school, my high school prepared me for what the professional game looked like or felt like. 
not necessarily the competition, but how it felt, you know, playing in front of thousands of people, playing in front of, you know, NBA scouts and, and that nature, and being in sold-out arenas, I had already been used to that. I had already been used to it. So when I walked into junior college or when I walked into Division One level, having sold-out arenas was a norm to me, you know. And if it wasn't sold out, it, was, it felt awkward. But it was a norm, so I was used to being in adversity, in tough situations, you know, going against some of the best players in the country, being on the road and in a hostile environment. So high school prepared me for a lot of that. When it came to your scholarship process, um, how is the recruiting process different from high school and then going to a JUCO and then JUCO to the next level? Because a lot of high school players now, because of how social media is, have like an easier outlet to reach out to universities and stuff. How was it back when you went through your process? Well, back then, you know, I graduated high school in 2002, so definitely the approach was a little different. Um, which is not the same for everybody. You remember I was a highly touted uh, athlete coming out of high school, so schools wanted me. And junior college was a decision that I had to do because of a, 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 a mistake that I had made choosing the wrong college. So it wasn't as if like I went from high school strictly to junior college. I had signed Division One, made a mistake, and had to go to junior college to fix the mistake. So that's exactly what the issue was at that time. And the recruitment is kind of the same. The thing that a lot of kids today is, like you said, with social media, the luxury is you can be seen a little more. I predate YouTube. We predate the social media area. So it's it was very difficult because a lot of it was word of mouth and you literally had to be that good. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not getting letters from Kansas, Duke, and Kentucky if you really couldn't play. You know, now you can log on somebody's YouTube or a social media account and all of a sudden you got all these schools looking at them or they can find access to them. These coaches have to fly across the country to come see yeah, us. So. Yeah. What was probably your most difficult basketball moment when it came to your career? Being injured, man. Like, a lot of people hear about it, but to be in the mind state of an athlete that goes through injury is so scary. We go through so much. You know, when you look at those guys that ever wonder if they could be the player that they once were, you know, as soon as you get hurt, there's a stigma over you that you'll never be who you were. You know, and it's sad because my favorite player of all time is Penny Hardaway. I am the biggest Penny Hardaway fan. He's yeah. one of the reasons that I wear number one. Okay. I was I used to lie and tell people I was related to the man. You know, I was I no serious. my family used to think they me little Penny. I really thought I was Penny Hardaway. And it's crazy that my career kinda went the exact path as Penny's, you know, star athlete who gets hurt and is never the same again. Okay. And that's the part that in my career that I had to adjust that was so hard to overcome because at that time the, the medicine of science was a little different you know they didn't have all what we have now so we couldn't necessarily fix me mm -hmm. within a short amount of time it, it may have took longer and the longer it took it just felt like I was getting further and further away from the player I once was so injuries played the greatest setback in any player's career What's your most memorable basketball moment of your career? Oh, high school, man. You know, you don't hear me talk about high school a lot. I had an unbelievable time in high school. It's crazy because young, all you young guys need to listen. When they, when your old heads tell you, enjoy being young, don't grow up too fast. You need to do that because when I was in high school, I couldn't wait to go to college. Got in college, couldn't wait to get out of college. The moment I had to become an adult, I wish I could go back through all that again. You know, I got to college and really had like a set schedule, practice, study hall, and it's like high school wasn't this hard. Yeah. You know, and it yeah. was. I got out of got out of graduated college, and all of a sudden realized I had bills. You know that I couldn't call coaches to fix. You know, 
I had certain things that it was my responsibility now. And damn, I was like, damn, I, I wish I was, you know, free food. Yeah. You know, the small things, the small things like free food, you know. And um, those are the parts you miss. And it was like, damn, this this really is on me now. Yeah. You know, I got to grow up and become a man and, and really be responsible. Yeah. So, you know, but the greatest moment for me in high school is being a three-time state champion and a national champion. That was like glorious moments because back then it was rare for guys to go back to back to back. You know, we would have been the first school to go four in a row, but we parted ways my senior year. And then now that, that accolade belongs to Stanley Johnson and modern day. So yep. we were the ones that had the original crack at it. Being an athlete in that era and achieving almost like the impossible with like back-to-back -back wins, let alone one, like in an era like that when there's a lot of talent Crazy in the LA talent. area, like from early 2000s, like not a lot of kids in this generation understand that like there were powerhouse schools. There were like talent. three kids, four kids, four-star athletes. I had nine Division One teammates. And that's at one school, right? <laughs> so what do you think takes for you to be like a championship team? Like how do you mold a championship team, being a part of it and coaching players of that level? A lot of it is sacrifice. And, you know, it's crazy because you look at teams now in the modern era, you look at uh, Golden State, mm -hmm. that exact team is the embodiment of sacrifice. That's all that is. That is a pure sacrifice amongst each other, our boy, amongst each other and their game to accomplish one goal. You know, KD could easily shoot the ball every time. He could lead the league and score if he wanted to. Steph Curry could say the same. You know, pretty sure Clay Thompson could opt out, go play anywhere he wants, shoot the ball every time. You know, but for these guys to come together and say, look, we have one common goal, regardless of who gets the notoriety, we'll achieve the same goal. And, and I learned that in high school playing with guys like Tyson Chandler. Yes, he was the face of the team, but Tyson never averaged 80 points. <laughs> Tyson averaged 100 rebounds, you know what I'm saying? So it took us as a unit to do that, and we all believed in one another. It was, it was a unique experience because I didn't learn about being selfish until college. You know, when you would get subbed out in high school, well, with my team, per se, you were okay with getting subbed out. You know, if you could see a dude run to the base, like, who you coming? Oh, you coming for me? Oh, cool, man. Like, you know, I was, I was excited to see my teammate get some of this action. I didn't see that until college where a dude was like, oh, I got you. Like, Something me for you know what I'm saying? Like, and it, it changed how mentally I had to look at the game. Like, oh, not everybody's winners. You know, a lot of guys are selfish. A lot of guys are worried about the individual accolade. When at the end of the day, no one person's name is on the scoreboard. It says Dominguez versus. So I can have 40 points. It won't say Keon won. It'll say Dominguez won. It's regardless of how hard I try. Same thing. The Warriors won the NBA championship. Not Clay, Steph, KD, and Draymond. We know they're a part of the Warriors organization. So. Sacrifice is the biggest thing it takes in order to win. How do you change that culture in an individual player? Because I coach right now, and I'm a younger coach, but I was exposed to players like yourself and other guys that I could look up to and talk to when it comes to that. So, like, my perception is a little bit different. There's some players now that if you sub them or take them out of game, they feel a certain type of way. But it's not because I feel in a certain type of way about the player. It's just that... It's a dip, like we make subs for, for for purpose. I'm not trying to hurt you in any any way, but how do you change the culture of your team or your player that you want to affect them for the better and let them know that? I think that starts at an early age. And I know we live in a very egoistic society. We live in a self gratifying society where if you don't like what you, you don't like adversity, you, you you run. You know with the AAU game now. Back then when I played, we only had maybe ten AAU teams, 
and the best players made those teams. That's it. Now, yeah. if you don't play on your best teams, your parents go buy you a team. Yep. There's so many AAU teams, I've lost complete name of some of them. Like, the ones that were around my era, like, oh, they're not existing. That's crazy. They're not around anymore. And it's hard to watch kids jump from school to school or team to team because it's instant gratification. Like, oh, I want to be happy now. You know, people have to understand, as a freshman, I backed up a guy by the name of Marcus Moore. 6'6 point guard, transfer from Redondo. Unbelievable talent. Played at Washington State, played and then played overseas for about 10 years. Unbelievable talent. I had to earn that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, I was cocky as a young eighth grader going into high school because I was one of the top eighth graders and I knew I was going to play varsity in high school. But when I got to that level, I had to earn my respect amongst my teammates. It wasn't given to me. I had to work my ass off in practice and and take those lumps to earn my six to eight minutes, maybe 10 minutes as a freshman. Now dudes are starting to varsity as a freshman, they earn nothing, you know? Like, in order to play for my team, you gotta earn that. So I think now to answer your question is, I think it starts with the younger age. You gotta stop hand feeding these kids. You know, let them sacrifice, you know, the everyone wins or the participation award. You gotta get rid of that stuff. You know what I'm saying? You gotta get rid of it because now they're getting spoiled when they come to us. Now when you're 19, 20, 21, if it don't go the way you want it, oh, I give up. I don't want to play anymore. I quit. You know what I'm saying? You can't be that way if you plan on being successful. How, what do you look for in players that you train and players that you recruit for, let's say, like a Drew League team or when it comes to, like, joining the CLC brand? Effort, heart, desire, like the things that it takes to be successful. You know, I'm not worried about how you may play overseas if your team wins. I don't work every player out. But you're going to be an extension of me, and I represent those things. I'm passionate. I, I'm determined. I, I go hard. Like I don't want to lose. I, I don't have a loser's mentality. Like I'm not, actually, I'm like the world's worst loser. Like if I lose a Jewel game, which we understand it may not count, but to me it counts. Yeah. And I go, I go crazy when we lose. Yeah, you know? I can, I can see it. No, no. If you ever watch me coach, you know, if you watch me as a player, I'm passionate about anything I participate in. Like we can't even play checkers for fun. <laughs> we video games. Something's got to be on the line. I can't play for fun because I it. it's it's pride on the line for me. Like I don't want you to walk away thinking like, uh, I could beat Keon. Like I don't want you to think that about anything. Classrooms, corporate. I don't want you thinking away that I'm I'm something you could just walk over. I feel that. You know, and that was the the, the, the kind of the the way that I approach things. And I think that's the I look for the same thing in players. That's dope. Where. Did you know that you were going to make the transition from a player to a coach? I had always had coaching in the back of my mind, even before the injuries. But once the injuries started to come, and they came, like, literally back to back to back, and um, and it kind of had to just be a reality. It's like, you know, basketball, I've given basketball everything. Guard, how we doing? Blood, sweat, and tears. I've dedicated my entire life to this game. And I had to find a way for basketball to pay me back. So I didn't want to give up on the one thing I've always known. So even with my degrees and graduating college, and yes, I could go in the work field, but basketball just has a place and that nothing other than basketball can can fill. So I just said, I got to find another way, whether it's being a player, whether it's, I mean, whether it's being a coach, whether it's player development, whether it's, I don't know, ball, ball boy manager. <laughs> like I have to be around this ball because that's all I've ever known since I was six years old. That's dope. What? What did you look for when it came to, I guess, like college? Because you know how not everybody can coach. Like, a lot of people can play because of, like, fundamentals or skill set or natural talent. 
not everybody can coach because it takes a certain type of player to understand it. What did you look for when it came to schooling when you were going through college, like classes or career-wise choice that made it easier to transition into professional coaching? Because it's not something that can just fall into somebody's lap and they can just make it happen or make something out of nothing. I mean, I, I, I took college from the coaches that I played for as a as a as a a tool to take from them, you know, to, to see how they coach, to learn schemes, you know, point guards, which I am, is an extension of the coach. And I literally had to know everybody's position, know every play, know every counter to every play, know everybody on the other team and their play. So it became a very cognitive game for me. And once I got past college and moved on to the professional and then walking into the coaching side of the game, it still became mental. You know, and I wanted to always be considered a high IQ guy. So I coach and train on the same premises. Like, it's a mental game. Everybody can run, shoot, and dribble, but there's ways to do it better. There's ways to take less movement, you know, and, and maximize minimum space, you know, things mm -hmm. like that that mm -hmm. I make it so mental for my players. I want them to literally envision themselves in a game with nobody around them, you know. And I, I, was, I was blessed with the luxury of being able to learn under Tim Grover and watch Kobe Bryant work out, and that changed everything I ever thought about basketball. That's, that had to be a crazy experience. Under Tim Grover, that's wild. Um, if you could sum up your career in one word, what would it be? Successful. I mean, I'm the living embodiment of persistence. You know, David, I could have gave up on basketball years ago. Mind you, I, I was once a top five player in the country. <laughs> I was Donald's All-American. I was projected to be in the NBA. I got hurt. I could have quit. <laughs> I could have walked away. I could have been a statistic. I could have been the same dude living in South Central, game banging, selling dope, you know, trying to figure it out, having a ton of kids or whatever it is. I don't want to stereotype my yeah, people, yeah, but of course. we get where that stereotype comes from. And I found a way out. You know, I didn't have to finish school. I didn't have to get my degrees, but I, def I felt that that was needed for me to not be become like everyone else. I don't want to be a statistic. My biggest fear is being normal, being like everybody else. And I chose to, to, to defy those odds. I chose to be the one, first one in my family to graduate college with a master's degree, you know. Felt that if I wanted to play or coach professionally or just travel the world, just imagine how many people in my family have ever been outside of Los Angeles. I've been to 70 countries since I started this business. In seven, eight years, I've been to seven, 70 countries. My family will never see that stuff, but I'm opening the mindsets and, and, and lives of a lot of other people around me, you know, and that's the that's the gift that I want to continue to give. I want people to know that we can make it out of this shit easily. It means everything. You know, I'm from here. I take pride in where I'm from. You know, I'm, I'm pro LA all day. Like, fight for it, <laughs> you know, literally. Um, just a summer ago, Ball is Life did a little docu-series on, uh, I think, four cities. Yeah. It's like Chicago. Chicago, New York, LA, LA. and DC, maybe. Mm -hmm. or Texas, one or the other. And um, they interviewed me and asked me something very similar to that question. And my response was, I think LA is the new mecca of basketball. I'm so LA, I believe in it. And other people, if you really follow the game, NBA, yeah. college, it is leaning towards Los Angeles or the West Coast, period. And I got death threats over that. I got death threats. 
people. Death threats. death threats. Because I said Los Angeles was a new mecca of basketball. I mean, if you look at the last few MVPs, you look at the first team All-NBAs, you look at half of the, uh, the, the All-Stars selected, they're from Los Angeles. If not Los Angeles, they're from California. If not California, they're from the West Coast. You know, and it's like, the West Coast is taking over, but people don't want to don't want to accept that change, which is fine. I don't I don't have to force that on them. But reality is reality. People know LA LA and the West Coast is taking over the basketball game. So I'll live with those death threats because they're just that they're just threats. But um, that's how I am about LA. I'm willing to put my life on the line for the city. I feel you 150 percent, 150 percent. Last question: What do you think the Drew has done for basketball culture in the LA area? Oh, it completely expanded it. The Drew League is that one special hidden gem that every city wished they had, but we're, less, we're lucky to have it. You know, a lot of credit to the Smiley family and those that play a significant part in keeping this thing afloat 45 plus years. Yeah. You know, that's an amazing thing. Um, and people love good basketball, you know, and they'll go wherever good basketball is. And Saturday and Sunday for three months in the summer, this is where the basketball is. And, you know, I'm beyond excited to be a part of it, to play a significant role in it. What up, Sam? To play a significant role in it as a coach, as a mentor, as a trainer, as the ambassador for the Drew League overseas. You know, all that I can contribute to such an already amazing thing, just to continue to make this brand global and to, to, to show people that, you know, this is where you want to come play basketball. Thanks for taking the time to listen. If you have someone in mind that has a story that you think should be heard, be sure to follow us on Instagram at the game behind the game and leave us a message. If you have any questions or comments, email us at gamebehindthegame@gmail.com. at gmail.com. In the meantime, help spread the word to anyone that you think may enjoy and or benefit from this podcast. And if you haven't yet, go to either Apple or Spotify podcast to subscribe, rate and leave us a review. Your input and experiences are what keep us going.